We're in uh, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 33 to verse 48 this morning. I believe this is like our 13th study. And so with our breaking away from uh, Matthew last Sunday for Easter service, we're now resuming that. And so whenever we resume back into the book, I want to be able to uh, refresh our memories of where we were a couple of weeks ago. We, uh, let's start by reading uh, together in verse 17, and we'll, we'll review. Verse 17 says, Jesus, these are Jesus' words. He says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law Till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. I shared two weeks ago the importance of these four verses. Uh, Really the importance of them in relationship to the rest of this chapter 5. In verse 17 and 18, Jesus said that I am the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He says, do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. He says, not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law until all is fulfilled. And I shared that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament, all of the law. He is the fulfillment. He didn't add to the law. He is the fulfillment of it. In verse 19, Jesus warned those who would wrongly interpret the law. People do that today, not just back then. People have wrong interpretations of God's word. Jesus warns. He says, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 20, Jesus tells us his standard of righteousness. He says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That's a high standard. Uh, Jesus is making it a point here. And so the rest of chapter 5 is going to be Jesus bringing in these illustrations or we could say these contrasts to the scribes and the Pharisees, their interpretation of the law. Jesus says, my standard of righteousness exceeds that. Today's message, I titled it, God's Standard for Righteousness, Part 2, because we've already looked at the first of these three, uh, first three illustrations. As I shared two weeks ago, The scribes and the Pharisees, they did not lack interest in God. They didn't lack any interest in the law of God. They were students of the law. They loved the law of God, and they held it in great regard. But the problem that the scribes and the Pharisees had was that they were more interested 
in the interpretation of the law than they were in the application of the law. There's a lot of people that do that today. They're more concerned with just getting in and deciphering really what the Bible says than they are living it. And that's a problem. Jesus wants us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Not just teachers and learning it. He wants us to put it into practice. They were also more interested in the mechanics of the law than in the souls of people. And that happens today. People so concerned with their doctrine and all these things. And doctrine, don't get me wrong, is important. But it should never overpower really our love for souls, our love for people. They were often more concerned with the letter of the law than they were of the spirit of the law. And all of this really put them in danger of misrepresenting God. They were not only misinterpreting the law, but they were misrepresenting God in doing that. And so in these verses, Jesus is going to teach, and he's teaching his disciples, and he's teaching us this morning, that he has a higher standard of righteousness. The first three illustrations that we saw two weeks ago was murder begins in the heart. The second illustration was sexual sins of the heart. And the third was bitterness in the heart. Jesus has a standard that superseded the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. The three that we're going to look at this morning are these. Jesus forbids oaths. He says we're to go the second mile. And thirdly, you shall love your enemies. So look at your Bibles at verse 3. Let's look at this first illustration this morning. Jesus forbids oaths. We could say that really at the core of this, it's really another heart issue. Because it's a heart issue of truthfulness that Jesus is dealing with here. The scribes and the Pharisees, they prided themselves in that they believed that they were keeping the commandments of Moses. But as I've already shared, often it was just an external thing. They were keeping the laws, or they thought they were keeping the laws, but it was only really an external thing that people saw, but they had heart issues. And, you know, God is always most concerned with our heart. The outward actions will change when the heart changes. But if we get that backwards and we're only trying to reform the outside without letting God by his spirit reform you on the inside, then it just becomes a religious thing. A bunch of do's and don'ts and things you're trying to stop doing and you find yourself getting frustrated. God wants to deal with our hearts. Jesus told us in verse 19 that the person who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now Jesus interprets the law concerning oaths. Look at your Bibles, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old or to the ancients, 
or to those going all the way back to when the commandments were given. You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. Now, if you have a pen or something to write with, you might want to underline one word in that verse. It's the word falsely. I believe that it's a key word to what Jesus is saying here. He says, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But then look what Jesus says in verse 34. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne. And then he says, nor by earth, for it is his footstool nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So, here's God's standard of it. Here's Jesus bringing a standard of righteousness that exceeds that of the religious people of the day. So what did the Mosaic law say concerning these things? What were those of old saying that Jesus needed to correct their interpretation and to bring it really into balance? We know that in the book of Leviticus in chapter 19, verse 1, It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I am holy, for I, I, the Lord your God, am holy. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, there's that word again, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another, And you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. That's what the law read. That was the Mosaic law. It's what the scribes and the Pharisees had read themselves, and they prided themselves in trying to accomplish this and to live up to it. In the book of Numbers... In chapter 30, verse 1, we read this. Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do it according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. You see... When God gave the law, God says, I take words seriously. If somebody says they're going to do something or they make an oath or they make an agreement, God says, I'm going to hold you to it. That was what the Mosaic law read. And it's what the scribes and the Pharisees thought that they were living up to. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 21, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, You shall not delay to pay it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it will be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. That which has gone from your lips, you shall keep and perform. For you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. 
You see, the things that we promise with our mouth, the vows that we make to God, the agreements that we make with people in the name of God, God says, I will hold you accountable with the things that come out of your mouth. Truthfulness and faithfulness and doing what we say, I believe, is what the law was stressing. Truthfulness of heart. Truth in heart. Faithfulness to the things that we say. That's what Jesus was stressing in the law, the commandments of God. And under the law of God, man was held accountable. The law and the prophets, they also stress this truth. We read in Psalm 15, the Psalm of David, David wrote this, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? He's asking a question. Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness, and then he says this, and speaks the truth in his heart. In Psalm 24, verse 3, We read, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, asking a question? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. You see, being deceitful is being misleading. When somebody is uh, misleading somebody, they're really being fraudulent. And what they're saying. The prophets spoke of this also in Jeremiah 5. We read in verse 1, Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. See now and know and seek in her open places. If you can find a man, if there is anyone who executes judgment, who seeks the truth, and I will pardon her. Though they say as the Lord lives, surely they swear falsely. Here's the prophet Jeremiah condemning, condemning really those that would swear falsely. Hosea 4.1, hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel, for the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing, committing adultery, they break all restraints with bloodshed upon bloodshed. The prophets, they condemned this swearing falsely or lying. We are in that time, really, again, aren't we, where we have the run for a new president. Uh, Most of us are, I think, probably sickened by uh, the years that we've seen all of these uh, false promises made. Uh, Different uh, promises that have made through the government, through politicians, And as Christians, we hate it. They make promises and they don't fulfill it. But let me ask you a question. How many of us have done the same? Done the same thing in making promises, making vows, and then not keeping them? You see, the law and the prophets, they were very clear on this topic. Uh, They 
the question needs to be asked about the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, how is it that they would uh, change the meaning of all of this? Why is Jesus having to, to address this issue? And I believe the reason that he is is because it goes back to the issue of the heart. There was a heart issue that needed to be dealt with. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees, they had their ways of manipulating God's law, changing it, interpreting it the way that fit for them. And you know what? We can't do that. God's word is God's word. God's truth is truth. One of the uh, big questions that Christians have asked in regards to the passage that we're reading this morning is about making oaths in the court of law. Some of you, I actually have jury duty coming up this month, my first time in North Carolina. I've got this jury duty, and and I haven't been to jury duty in a lot of years, so I'm not sure how the court systems work uh, today, but I think that they probably still have people uh, swear upon such and such or in some fashion that what they're saying is true. I know that in all kinds of different professions, there are people that make oaths. There are people that uh, are held to oaths by their profession. And one of those is the Hippocratic Oath. We have uh, one man here that would know the Hippocratic Oath. And I've never read the Hippocratic Oath, but I went ahead and looked it up online. I like this Hippocratic Oath, by the way, because if you're a patient under a doctor, you like some of the things that it says. Let me just read you a few, uh, a few of the things that we read. It, it, the, this is the modern version, by the way. Uh, Mitchell probably has this memorized. This is the modern version of the Hippocratic Oath. I swear to fulfill to the best of my ability and judgment this covenant. He's, I swear, he's using, it's used within this Hippocratic oath. I swear to fulfill. It also says, I will not be ashamed to say, I know not, nor will I fail to call my colleagues when the skills of another are needed for a patient's recovery. I'm glad of that. I'm glad that's in that Hippocratic oath. Here's another one. Above all, I must not play as God. I I like that if my doctor is not playing God, but that he's trusting in God. You see, if you read this whole thing, this is an oath or this is something that they're swearing as they take on this profession as a doctor. But I also started looking at this whole issue of the court system and how that works. I read from an, and this was actually from an atheist website. And this is what was a concern to the atheists, obviously, that don't believe in God and they don't believe in the Bible, that when they go into a a courtroom, that they're being asked to swear on the Bible or swear by a a higher power other than themselves. And they're saying, we're being hypocritical in doing that because we don't even believe in a God. But listen to what they say about making this, uh, affirming this oath in a courtroom. It reads this way. If you ask a judge in open court to be permitted 
to affirm an oath to tell the truth rather than to swear to God and on the Bible. Now, here's our political correctness for today. There is this new uh, word that is being inserted into this that just means that you just need to affirm that what you're saying is true. You don't need to swear to God or on the Bible that what you're saying is true. That's being politically correct and fitting all the people that would come into court. But it goes on to say, and I think this is the interesting part, it says, you'll be drawing on a great deal of attention to yourself if you go the mode of just saying, I affirm this oath, you'll be drawing a lot of attention to yourself because everyone knows that you swear an oath to God and on the Bible to tell the truth. Then you will attract attention even if you make arrangements ahead of time. It is more likely that this attention will lean negative because so many people associate morality with God and Christianity. Anyone refusing or failing to swear to God will thus become suspicious to at least a percentage of its observers. So what they're saying is is that there's still people that are going to look down on you because you're refusing to put your hand on the Bible. You're refusing to swear before God. You just want to affirm that what you're saying is true. And so when a person affirms an oath to tell the truth, they're asking the courtroom, they're asking the judge really to trust the integrity of their words only. They're not saying that I, I need to put this on my hand on the Bible and swear to God that I'm telling you the truth or some higher power, but just that you would, on my own integrity, believe the words that I'm saying. That's not very binding when you think about it. But by swearing something, you're saying that you're binding yourself to an oath. This is what Jesus is dealing with here. Uh, By swearing to something, you're binding yourself. Actually, the definition of swearing is this. It's to make a solemn declaration or affirmation by some sacred being or object as a deity or the Bible other than yourself. Do you see the difference between swearing and that being an oath? and then just affirming something. That comes from me. This is, in a sense, what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing. They were taking the law of God and changing it to fit their own own, uh, needs that they had. It's also important, though, for us to know, when it comes to these questions about making judicial oaths in a courtroom, uh, they're the Quakers. They fought against this. They still do today that they believe in no case should any Christian ever make an oath in a courtroom. And they, and they fight against it. But it's important for us to know that I believe that these judicial oaths that often we are held to in the court of law, Jesus himself did so. We read in Matthew chapter 26, verse 59, it says, Now the chief priests, the elders, and all of the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none, and even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. 
But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, this fellow said that I am able to destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said to him, do you answer nothing? He's asking Jesus this. Do you answer nothing? Jesus was just staying quiet. What is it these men testify against you, they said. But it says, but Jesus kept silent. He didn't open his mouth. And then the high priest answered and said to Jesus, I put you under oath by the living God. And by doing so, and by saying that, it says, he says, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. I put you under oath by the living God. And it says... And it, and, and it is as you, and Jesus said, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witness? Look now, you have heard his blasphemy. It was this high priest putting Jesus under oath that Jesus, knowing the law, responded. Then he opened his mouth when he was put under oath. He responded to their question. And so Jesus, even under oath, made it a point to respond. The Apostle Paul used God as his witness. Is it wrong for a Christian to be a, a make a witness and to say that God is my witness? I, I don't see that in Scripture. Romans 1.8, Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world, for God is my witness. In Revelation chapter 10, there was an angel that swore by God. We read in uh, chapter 10, verse 5, The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. And so here's this angel actually swearing by him who lives, by God. And so Jesus was not, I believe, saying that his disciple, t- telling his disciples that in this text here that all swearing is is wrong but it's this word that i had you underline it's swearing falsely that jesus was condemning he went on to give them now the correct understanding of the law this is god's righteousness this is his standard look at your bibles at verse 34 but i say to you Do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. Do you see what Jesus is using here? He's saying here that swearing by heaven, by earth, by Jerusalem, by the hair on your head... He's saying these things here are uh, lesser things. You see, that's what the Pharisees wanted to do with the law. They came up with these lesser things instead of using the name of God or using his name in their oaths that they made. And by doing so, they could determine 
if they had to fulfill it or not. And that's where we see how Jesus was trying to correct this. We might say that the scribes and the Pharisees had found a loophole. They, they found this loophole really for their own advantage, to work for them. They were really twisting the law in doing so. What they were doing was shifting the emphasis from truthfulness of heart to honoring only those vows that were made to the Lord. So if a vow or a promise or something that was made to the Lord, they would feel this accountability to fulfill it. If it was made uh, by heaven, by earth, by Jerusalem, they didn't necessarily have to fulfill that covenant or that agreement that they made. That's how they were twisting God's word and the law of God. Really what they were doing is they were deceiving themselves and in doing so and teaching others the same, they were deceiving others. The reason Jesus condemned their swearing by these things was because they were using them to reinforce lies. They were using them to reinforce half-truths that they would say. And uh, these kinds of vows that they were making over Jerusalem and, and this, they weren't binding. They weren't binding vows, and they knew it. It's like when you hear a person, and maybe some of us have said this, I swear on my mother's grave. You ever said that before? Or heard someone say that? But when somebody says that versus uh, they swear by the name of God or they swear on the Bible, uh, which one sounds like it has a little bit more uh, power to it? I swear on my mother's grave and you're thinking, okay, I don't know if I can trust you with that one. But I swear on the Bible. I swear in the name of the Lord. Jesus in Matthew chapter 23, he pronounces eight woes against the, against the scribes and the Pharisees. And one of those woes that he pronounced had to do with these oh, uh, making uh, these oaths. Listen to what he says. Chapter 23, verse 16. Jesus says, woe to you, and he calls them blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple... It is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obligated to perform it. Do you see what they're doing? Whoever swears by the temple, I don't have to fulfill that obligation. But whoever whoever swears by the gold that was in the temple, that you're obligated to. He says, you fools and blind. He says, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that that sanctifies the gold? And he says, and whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. That's what the Pharisees were saying. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obligated to perform it. He says, you know, I can make a, a swear by the altar that is there at the temple. And I can, it's not binding to me as a Pharisee. But if I swear by the gift that is presented on the, God, on the altar, that I'm bound to. You see what they're doing? They're twisting. They were tris, twisting the law of God. 
Jesus again says, you fools and blind. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God, by him who sits on it. In other words, it's all God's. Whether it's the gift or the altar, whether it's the temple or the gold in the altar, it's all God. And God says, I hold you accountable to it. Here's the problem that the scribes and the Pharisees had. They thought they had a way out of these oaths. They thought that they could put it a certain way and then not be bound by it. Jesus uh, goes on to say in verse 37, this is really now the Lord's instructions to his disciples in light of what we just read. He says, but let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. As Christians, we're not to be hypocrites, are we? We're not to be actors, hypocrites, as the scribes and the Pharisees often were. We should be people of character. We should be uh, people of integrity. Uh, people of our word, people who do not need to back up our words with oaths or swearing that I'm going to do this or do that. That shouldn't be uh, characteristic of us as Christians. You know, we typically don't trust people who have to swear so that we'll believe them, do we? We don't like that when people have when people have to you know somebody has to swear to make you believe them. We don't like that. You know when when the when the mechanic wants to tell you when you've had your car in there and the mechanic wants to tell you, I swear I put that new part in your engine. And you're thinking, why do you have to say that? I mean, we're we're distrusting just in that that somebody would have to swear to make you believe them. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let the integrity of your heart speak for yourself, that you are a person of your word. When you say something, you mean it. And I think we all like it when we have people around us like that. Jesus says, be truthful in your heart. Be trustworthy. Be good witnesses of me. You see, it's a poor witness. When a Christian says that he's going to do something, then it doesn't fulfill it. God holds us at our word. When I said to my wife, I'm going to marry her until death do us part, I made an oath. I made a commitment before God that I was going to remain with her until death do us part. God holds me at that, at those words. He holds you at that same standard. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. For anything more than this is contrary to speaking truth in your heart. Let me ask you all, 
a searching question. When you say that you're going to do something, is it as good as done? You tell somebody you're going to do something for them or say something, is it just as good as done? Does the person that heard you say it know about your integrity and know that you're such a person of your word that when you say it, it's just, it's going to happen? That's the kind of people we should be. I think that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, my standard is higher than what the scribes and the Pharisees were wanting to do. But the people of the day looked at those religious people of the day and said, these are the religious people. These are the ones that are really living out God's word and God's law. Again, we see that God's standard of righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Another illustration is, is that Jesus says that we're to go the second mile. We could call this the sin of retribution or the law of retribution. Look at your Bibles, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So what did the Mosaic law say in regards to these words? Exodus 21:22 tells us this. If men fight and hurt a woman with a child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him, and he shall pay as the judge determines. This is the law now. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. This is the law. This is what the scribes and the Pharisees knew and what they read. In Leviticus 24, verse 17, whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, animal for animal. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor as he has done, he shall, it, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. Whoever kills an animal shall restore it and give him another animal. But whoever kills a man shall be put to death. That was the law. Deuteronomy 19.21. Your eye shall shall not pity. Life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And Jesus said that the punishment needs to be equal is what was being said. Jesus takes this eye for an eye or this law of restitution and now he gives it his standard of righteousness. He's going to supersede this and what the scribes and the Pharisees thought that they were living up to. You see, the natural tendency of our flesh as human beings is that somebody, if somebody violates you, 
If somebody were to come up and, and, and violate you or harm you in some way or somebody that you love, your natural tendency of your flesh is that when you come back in retribution is that you're going to come back harder on them than what they administered to you. If somebody you know, pokes your eye out, you're going to probably want to go back and maybe kill them. You're going to want to go out and you're going to, you're going to want to harm them in a greater way than you've been harmed. That was the purpose of the law, to bring it about so that people wouldn't go in, in an extreme way, overstep their bounds of retribution. The law was given so that punishment for the crime was not greater than what you had received. That's why the law had to be given to man. The promise, or the, excuse me, the punishment needed to fit the crime. That's what we hopefully have in our court systems today. But like every righteous standard of Jesus, he takes it further. Look at verse 39. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go a mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. (laughs) You see, Jesus just took it up a whole big notch here. He, he, He took it to a standard that most of us even right now are thinking, that's hard to do. As a matter of fact, I can't even do that. They're actually contrary to our natural tendencies. We, 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 it's hard for us to even grasp the ability to be able to do what Jesus is asking us to do. To be, for somebody to come up and to slap you in the face and then to turn and give them the other one. <laughs> That, that, have you ever had to do that? And how would you respond if someone did? Here's something important to know about what Jesus is saying here. Culturally speaking, for someone to take and to slap someone on the face was really a way of bringing about a deep insult. It was insulting them. It really was not necessarily a physical attack that we might think of. So to slap somebody was like to insult them. And Jesus says, give them the other cheek. Continue to take that insult. Jesus is not saying to us, and this is important for us to know, if someone comes up to you and they punch you in the face, that we're just to stand there and say, hit me again. That's not what Jesus is saying. Why? Because we have laws, right? There's the law of the land. We have policemen that actually uh, look out for, for those kinds of things. You're breaking the law if you go up and you punch somebody in the face. Paul says in Romans 13, 1, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. 
For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And he's talking about the police and those that watch over us. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do you do what is good? And you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. God has placed those policemen in that place for our good, to watch over us, to be those ones that can intercede, to say, hey, that person needs to be arrested. So Jesus is not saying that as Christians, we need to stand there and let people use us as a punching bag and just keep turning the other cheek. That's not what he's saying. We have laws to protect that. But Jesus is saying that there will be times, and this is his standard now, There will be times that you will be insulted for the sake of the gospel. You will be called upon to take insults. You will be led by God to put aside your rights. You see, if somebody comes up and slaps you on the cheek, and you're right, you've got rights. But for us to put aside our rights... Because somebody just insulted me and I have rights. You can't do that. And our, uh, the obvious is that we want to lash out at that. Jesus says, give them the other cheek. You've just been insulted. We are often it's insulted as Christians, aren't we? In various ways. Sometimes those come at work any of you been insulted for your Christian faith or what you stand for by a family member somebody at work how about somebody on the road somebody cuts you off your tendency I'm going to cut them off somebody doesn't like what you stand for and they say something against you I think we've all had people like that in our life, haven't we? But it's how we respond to them that Jesus is dealing with here. Jesus says and shows his disciples, I have a higher standard of righteousness than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Look at verse 40. He goes on to give another example. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. You know, the tunic was the inner garment that a Jew would wear. It's like that set of pajamas. You know the one that has a little trap door in the back? It's like this inner garment that they would put on, right? That was the tunic. But he says, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, Let him have your cloak also. The cloak was what they wore on the outside of that. It was like a jacket, but they also slept in that. Now, the cloak was something for a Jew that under the Mosaic law, this outer cloak 
was an inalienable possession of the Jew. In other words, the law read that somebody could not take that cloak from you. Here's Jesus saying, if anyone wants to sue you and take away, take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. That was up against the Mosaic law. As a matter of fact, we read in Exodus twenty two twenty six that if you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, this is how the law read, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his own covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. So that cloak that Jesus is saying, this, we're talking about rights here. We're talking about as a Christian, being able to set my rights aside and say, here's my cloak also. That's a great testimony of our Lord, isn't it? And that, that supersedes what the scribes and the Pharisees were wanting to do with God's law. Jesus gives another example in verse 41. Whoever compels you to go a mile, go with him too. And we know that under uh, the Roman military occupation of the day, that a Jew that he was under Roman law was obligated to carry that soldier's backpack, we could say, to be able to, to carry his pack for one mile. The Jew would have known that. He would have completely understand what Jesus meant by what he was saying here. But Jesus says, if that Roman soldier asks you to carry his pack for a mile, go two miles with him. Oh, God. The law only said a mile. I mean, that's all I'm really obligated for, Lord. Why, why do I have to go two miles? Why take it the extra mile? Jesus says, my standard of righteousness is higher than man's. What I'm calling you as believers supersedes that. And you say, but I can't do that. Well, good. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We need to ask the Lord, Lord, work these things into my heart. Make me be this kind of person that is willing to set my rights aside that I might glorify you, that I might stand out as being somebody different than just a religious person. Jesus goes further in verse 42. He says, Give to him who asked you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Again, this is an area that we quite often resist. Somebody comes up to you and asks you for something. Or whether it's a neighbor or whether it's somebody at the gas station, as this happened to me the other day. I pulled into the gas station to put gas in my car and this man came walking across from another pump and says, hey, can you put some gas in my car? I need to get to work. And the first thing that kind of just ran, to be honest with you, ran through my head was, you know, is this guy being honest? Does he really need gas right now? 
Is he just needing some money? You know, how often does that happen to you? What are they really wanting? And what I realized at the moment as I stood there for just a split second, what I realized, this guy's got a need. And I can fulfill it. And so that I, I did, and I went and got him some gas. But to be honest with you, that's what ran through my head at first, because it's unnatural, isn't it? And I had to hear the Holy Spirit say, you know what? Don't worry about it. Just give him some gas. There's a need. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. I think all of us struggle with this whole thing on a day-to-day basis. As we go around the city and we see these people begging for money, wanting something, and we think, you know, why don't they get a job? (laughs) Why don't they, you know, hey, I work. Why don't they get a job and work? We're often questioning in our our minds, are they, are they really being sincere and honest? Or are they just out there just tricking people to get money? That's the natural tendency of our hearts and our minds at times. But we need to be sure that when we're turning people away, people that are asking something of you, that you're not turning away an opportunity that maybe God has placed before you for that moment. And there are many of them. And God may want to use you in that occasion. It becomes our witness. It becomes something that we can do that, that is just not the normal. So many people just questioning that. One person said this, it is better to help a score of fraudulent beggars than to risk turning away one man in real need. I think that we should always look at situations and say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Don't let me go with just what my mind says. You know what? They're They're just trying to get something out of me. Distrusting of everyone that's out there. Yes, I believe we need to be wise. Is it always a loving thing to give somebody money? No. And I don't believe that the Lord says every single person that walks up to you and asks you for something, or if your neighbor wants to come up to you and ask you for something, Ray, (laughs) that we would always automatically say that we need to do so. But here's what I think we should probably better do. Be people that are just saying, Lord, I want to be a vessel that you can use. I don't want to lose opportunities. I I, I want to shine for you. And if I can be a witness to this person, Lord, at the risk of them taking advantage of me, and Lord, you may only know, I'll risk that for an opportunity to shine for you. I believe as Christians that the standard that we are held to by our Lord in these verses are ones that we're all going, you know what, 
this is beyond me. This is not my natural makeup. And that's a right perception because it's not natural. This is something that God wants to do in us. This last illustration that he gives in verse 43, look at your Bibles. This is another issue of the heart. He says in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. This is how the law read, Leviticus 19.17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That was the Levitical law. Again, this is how easy it is for people to twist the law of God. This is what the the scribes and the Pharisees were doing. Uh, To make them say, uh, to make it say and mean what fits their ability. That's what they were really doing. They were twisting scriptures. But listen to David in Psalm 139, verse 21. He says, oh, that you would slay the wicked. O God, depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. You see, the law never told us to love or to hate, excuse me, to hate our enemies. But what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing is they were taking this notion from other scriptures that they were reading, like David here, saying that, there, that we could have this perfect hatred towards our enemies. And that's what the, the scribes and the Pharisees, how they were distorting, really, the law. This all seemed reasonable, to hate your enemy. It seemed like that that would be the normal thing that you would do. They're your enemy. God, you hate them, and, and, and that would be the natural tendency. But here's God's standard of righteousness that Jesus calls us to. Look at verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies. Oh, no. Another standard that just seems too hard to grasp. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Does anybody read that and go, uh, I can't do that. That's hard. That's difficult. As a matter of fact, it's really in my mind, it's impossible, some of us might say. Remember, this command to love is a matter of our will. It's not spurred on by an emotion. To love your enemy is a matter of your will. It's something that you have to choose to do. Why? Because the Lord has told me to love your enemies. And so, Lord, I'm, 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 I've been risen to a higher standard 
than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Verse 45 says that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, Jesus says, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Isn't it interesting that Jesus is using that profession here and Matthew is a tax collector? That's what he was by profession. If you love those who love you, well, even the heathen, even people that don't know Christ, love people that love them. What reward do you have then, Christians? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, verse 47, what do you do more than others? Do not the tax collectors do so? And Jesus closes with this, verse 48. Therefore, therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Jesus is summarizing in verse 48 everything that we read before this, these six illustrations that he has given us, that he says that my righteous standard is higher than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's a big demand. This word perfect needs to be understood, though, in the light of the context here. Perfection here is not saying that we need to be sinless. Jesus is not saying, I want you to be sinless or that you would be without flaw, but you should be growing spiritually. You should be maturing as a Christian in these things. Your understanding of these things should be broadening. And then you should be asking the Lord to work these things into your heart and in your mind. That's what Jesus was exhorting his disciples to do with this. We have a perfect role model, don't we? His name is Jesus Christ. And we're to walk even as he walked. We're to follow in his footsteps. If there's anyone that knows how to uh, put his rights aside, it's Jesus Christ. Or to love enemies, it's Jesus Christ. He knows. And we're to reflect and be those reflections of our role model to this world. Why? So we'll be a witness. 
people see that you're just not a scribe or a Pharisee, that you're just not just a religious person that goes to church on Sunday. But there's actually something different about the way you handle yourselves around people. You're different, and I'm drawn to that. That's what Jesus wants to do with our lives. Being perfect, and I'll close with this, is doing these things. It's loving your enemies. It's praying for those who spitefully use you. It's laying aside your rights. It's going the extra mile. It's giving to those who ask you giving away your cloak, being truthful in your heart, letting your yes be yes and your no, no, guarding your heart from bitterness and staying committed in your marriage, guarding your heart from sexual sins, reconciling with your brother quickly. That's being perfect before, that's maturing and growing before the Lord. I would be the first one to say, I can't do this perfectly. There is no way that I could live this standard out perfectly without fault and error in my life. But for us as believers to be able to say in our hearts and minds, Lord, this is my goal, to be like you, to allow you to work these things in me, that my integrity, that my heart would rule my actions and the things that I do. That to me is God's standard of righteousness. This is Jesus' standard of righteousness that always superseded the religious men of the day. May the Lord fill us afresh even today with his Holy Spirit. Fill us to overflowing so that when we go out this week, we're out in the workforce, we're out on the street, we're wherever we are, and we get confronted with some of these things that we just heard today, that we might do it differently, that we might come across to the people in a sincere way that, you know what, you're different. And in in doing that, God is going to receive all the glory. God is going to be glorified in your life. Trust that God wants to use you. Trust that he wants to empower you and give you all that you need to do this. He doesn't tell you and call you to this high standard and say, now I want you to bite the bullet and do it on your own. He says, I will give you what you need. Just humble yourself before me. Come before me and I will do it in you. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this morning. Lord, I pray that, Lord, these things that we read, Lord, that you would work them into our hearts. Forgive us, Lord, for the times that we have fallen short in these areas. And Lord, it's many. But Lord, we thank you for the example that you have set before us. 
We thank you, Lord, that there is a standard of righteousness that is not our own, that it's your righteousness that we want to obtain. We thank you for imparting your righteousness to us that we might live, but Lord, that we would also live rightly according to your standard in this world. And Lord, I thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.